Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Lydia Millett. She is a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in the National Book Award, and her last novel, A Children's Bible, was one of New York Times' 10 best books of 2020 and one of Explore Booksellers' most important books of all time. Her newest book is Dinosaur, which is published by our friends at W.W. Norton and Company. Lydia, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It is an honor to have you here. And my first question, Lydia, um, not a ton of books take place in Arizona, uh, or in Aspen for that matter, at least compared to a couple of places where I used to live, North Carolina and San Francisco. I mentioned to you before we started recording that I lived in Tempe, Arizona for a little over a year, and I was both surprised and not surprised at the lack of published novels that take place there. So this is a multifaceted question, Lydia. One, why choose to set your novel in Arizona um, and have a few of your characters travel to Aspen? Um, Of course, some of it takes place in New York as well. But why Arizona? And are there any other works that you would like to highlight uh, for our listeners that take place in Arizona? Um, Let's see. Well, the first part is easy. I, I live in Arizona. I love the desert. And I actually moved out here back in 1999, which sort of ages me, uh, from New York because I love the Sonoran Desert so much. Um, so the main character in in Dinosaurs uh, actually walks from New York to, to Phoenix, which I did not do, but I did make that, you know, that kind of journey where I came from the urban Northeast um, and uh, I have also actually lived in, in North Carolina and in LA and, but, when I came out to the desert, it was really a deliberate act of sort of love for this landscape. And so that's mirrored in this book. Um, and uh, Gil, who is the protagonist of Dinosaurs, um, really falls in love with the landscape the way that I did uh, back in the day when I first came out. I actually first came out in 1990 to briefly attend grad school uh, at the U of A in Tucson and dropped out. <laughs> I was a, you know, a grad school dropout, um, but I loved the desert so much that I just, I couldn't stand not to to come back. And then I stayed here. So um, as for other books set in the desert that I, you know, I would, I would I've set most of my books in, in Los Angeles and um, some of them in parts East, um, because it was easier for me to write about than my home uh, for some reason, even though LA has been my home in the past and, and uh, my brother and sister still live there. Um, But the desert is in many ways, a subtle place. um, And uh, you know, it's extravagantly beautiful and also extravagantly difficult and prickly, you know, (laughs) and I, I love, I love those things about it. I love its sort of untouchability and its quality of being a terrarium. And um, but I was still writing about sort of privileged people in the privileged neighborhoods, as I have written about in the case of LA. Uh, so that was something that this book had in common with some of my other, some of my other books. Um, but the, yeah, the question of 
books that I personally love that are set in the desert, you're right, they're harder to find than books set in sort of major metropolitan areas or even places that have a real sort of homegrown book culture like North Carolina, um, real sort of tradition of Southern and North Carolina literature. Um, there's there's not that to the same degree here, or if there is, it's a it's a kind of specific um, landscape, you know, a monkey wrenching landscape or a cowboy landscape, but things things that I'm not really writing about uh, in this novel. So, yeah, I I thought it was a great time to write about because I was writing the book um, during it was before the pandemic, but during the Trump presidency and. Um, you know, I thought it just felt like a perfect time to write about suburban America and the sort of alienation and isolation that that can exist there, as well as some of some of the beauties that that live in the suburbs. Absolutely. Thank you, Lydia. And we will um, touch upon many of the things you just spoke about later, including uh terrariums in the Trump presidency. But first, Lydia, I'm hoping that you can take a moment to set this excellent novel, Dinosaurs, up for our listeners. Sure. It's a pretty simple construct. Gil is a man of private wealth and great loneliness who moves out west to, um, to sort of recover from a terrible relationship terrible long relationship in New York City that um, that that has failed and um, he moves into a house in this sort of wealthy enclave like Scottsdale or Paradise Valley um, that uh, that has another house next door of which one wall is glass and so he is put into the position of watching this this neighbor family that moves in and um, and ends up becoming really enmeshed in their lives and um, and having them become an enormous part of his own personal and emotional life. So it's it's about his relationship with this family and it's about watching and, uh, and seeing each other and, um, you know, what voyeurism has become or not become in the culture. How sort of voyeurism has become so second nature to us now that we don't even call it voyeurism anymore because our whole lives are spent watching the faces and movements of other people on screens, you know. So this this glass house that he's beside is is a kind of theater of of human emotion and life and relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Lydia. Um, I found this book to be compulsively readable. Uh, do you find short novels to be the medium that you are most comfortable with? Yes, uh, I'm reading as well as writing. <laughs> like I've become resistant. Um, the longer I live, the more resistant I become to big sort of doorstop novels and the more self-indulgent I find them. Mm. Uh, you know, I think beautiful, beautiful things are often very small and self-contained. And, um, and increasingly, I find that as a reader, I'm drawn to books with a lot of space for the reader and with sort of this white space and um, with a sort of stillness. And, uh, and I was trying to, trying to achieve that in this book as well. The stillness of not having too many words, of not having sort of lavish physical description, um, of not dwelling on minutiae for too long, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. 
Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And I, I'm um, thankful for these um, smaller compulsively readable books as I do about one of these um, interviews a week sometimes too. Um, yeah, this book is is just fantastic. Um, I now want to ask you, Lydia, and I will elaborate on this question if you need me to. Um, is our protagonist in this story Batman? <laughs> I like that. Uh, I think that he he does have so if batman is a caped vigilante who comes from wealth mm -hmm. um there is a parallel with gill isn't there and not that he well he actually does sort of wear not a cape but he does at one stage wear dark garb i love that you've made this connection jason actually because <laughs> no one has yet um but yeah he doesn't have a he doesn't have a literal bat cape but maybe his mansion like house is like the wayne mansion a little bit um and he does he's a he's a quite gentle person but he does finally become his own version of of a minor vigilante he's he's certainly not um you know a killer uh and maybe batman's not a killer either batman tries not to kill but um so i guess he's a, he's kind of a bird man um, the original title of this book was actually Man of Birds mm. or Men of Birds, I think. Uh, so yeah, Birdman and Batman. He sort of rises up in defense of the birds, but um, but yeah, I love I love that comparison. Yeah, thank you, um, Lydia. And of course, like my motivation for that question was he um, inherit inherits his riches. His parents are murdered wears bat costume, volunteers. Um, I believe one of the creators of many of our favorite superheroes at DC Comics was named Gil Kane. Um, is that right? I did not know that. It is, yes. I was finding lots of connections there. But um, speaking of our protagonist, Gil, uh, he likes to go to new places because they are different from old places, um, as you write in this novel. What does this tell us about his character? And what I mean is... What type of person likes to go to new, fresh places all of the time, as opposed to the type of person who depends upon routine for their comfort? Oh, that's a really good question. I think it depends on whether you're running to or running from to a certain degree. And he's doing both, but he accuses himself of running away from things. But as it turns out, he's also running to to something in this in this novel um what type of person i don't know i'm split i think i i think travel you know can be extraordinary especially when you're young to sort of show you the breadth and magnificence of the world and i also think it can be sort of a compulsive escape um that travel can allow you to sort of skim over the surface of things without having to ground yourself in a familiar landscape that you are responsible for. So I think there's this sort of um, double-edged sword or bat knife or something of, um, of travel where uh, it can broaden you, but it can also, you know, it's sort of like the tourism of life. There can be a certain tourism, touristic element, right, to traveling that is escapist, uh, even though say you're going to different places, you're not really engaging with those places in a way that's anything but consumerist, right? Mm -hmm. Or there's also a way of really 
embedding yourself in places um, as a traveler, but it's the rare traveler who does that, I think. Um, and we've become such a nation of, you know, of migrants, really. I mean, we we disperse, our families disperse as they, as they didn't used to into far-flung locations. And there's isolation that comes from that. And also, I think, kind of a peripatetic relationship to place sometimes that, um, that allows us to sort of continually forget how vital the details of the world around us are to our to our life mm -hmm. yeah absolutely thank you so much lydia listeners we're going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor and then i will be right back with lydia millet the Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Lydia Millen, author of Dinosaurs, which is published by our friends at W.W. Norton and Company. Lydia, stepping away from this wonderful new novel, Dinosaurs, for one question, uh, your previous novel, A Children's Bible, is a work of climate fiction. Uh, do you think we have made any progress in the USA and in the world as a whole with recently passed legislation um, in the USA and in California specifically uh, regarding protecting the climate? Or do you think we waited too long? Where are we at with this? Uh, well, there's certainly no time to lose. I, you know, and um, I think certain progress has been made. Certainly California is, is, making good strides, but um, things like the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act are to a great degree business as usual, despite all the hype in uh, the mainstream press, because that particular law uh, really sort of consists of a uh, sort of grandfathered in series of handouts to big oil and gas and fossil fuels in general. Um, because it was a deal cut with 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 Joe Manchin, who's of course a coal a coal baron in his way. Um, mm -hmm. So that particular piece of legislation is tragic in many ways. Um, <laughs> and we, you know, it's great to support green energy, and we have to do that, and we have to build out our capacity very swiftly. But if we are also continuing to remove fossil fuels from the ground at this breakneck pace, um, you know, uh, we're just treading water. And um, and so I think, you know, what, what we need is really a revolution away from these fuels now. And uh, and so it's quite, it remains quite a desperate and urgent situation. Um, and, uh, you know, um, 
it's it's not a it shouldn't be sort of a win-win situation <laughs> it's it, there is no such thing with fossil fuels yeah absolutely thank you so much lydia um back to dinosaurs uh Gil's neighbors in Arizona live in a glass house, as you mentioned earlier. Um, and I've read a few novels and short stories lately that feature glass houses. Uh, Megan Mayhew Bergman recently featured terrariums and glass houses in her new short story collection. Uh, Emily St. John Mandel, others that I'm thinking of. Um, as a brief aside, every time I see a glass house, I think of an excellent Radiohead song off of their album Amnesiac. But um, why do you think glass houses are having a moment or do you and um if you think about such things at all and what does the specific glass house in your story tell us about gill and the family living next door to him well i think most of these glass houses that we're seeing are pretty straightforward metaphors for um you know, social media and the life of the screen and the way in which sort of screens and boxes and reflective surfaces uh, and mirroring have become kind of the first principle of, of social life. And um, so, yeah, so it's not surprising that there's this sort of efflorescence of glass house metaphors. And of course, also the the classic metaphor about living in one and throwing stones, right, <laughs> um, is, is apt as well. Um, yeah, and it's interesting that you notice that through line because I hadn't really noticed it, but now that you mention it, yes, you know, this is it's sort of the analog metaphor um for devices and and rapturement before the screens. Yeah, for sure. And um speaking of screens, if anyone hears any strange beeping, the power just blinked off here, but somehow our, our zoom has kept going. So um <laughs> Other, other devices in the background may start making noises soon. Um, well, Lydia, two things that play a huge role in my life currently as as a father of a six-year-old, um, and even before that, to a certain degree, are basketball and skateboarding. And these are two things that play yes. large roles in this novel, Dinosaurs. Um, are you a fan of skateboarding and basketball, or did you include these things to tell us about um, Gil and, and the characters that he is interacting with, or both? That is so funny that that you mentioned that. I uh, my son is um, fourteen and he's completely obsessed with skateboarding, and um, I mean, really, just just completely immersed in that culture and all the parts of it, video parts he watches, and um, and I kind of I kind of admire skate culture, um, and I don't know as much about basketball, although my son is also likes to play basketball, but it, it's it's a distant second to skateboarding. So the the little boy Tom in this uh in this book, he's younger because my son was was his age when I was writing the book, more or less, you know. Um and he's not as immersed in in skate culture as my son is now, uh, much as my son wasn't at the time. Um but I do think it's an interesting, it's it's a kind of great counterculture um and a sort of you know it's a great dance of of sort of socializing skate skate culture has really um almost more to do with interactions with other skaters than sometimes with a physical act which is a delicate and difficult um athletics but uh but really it's so much about a certain posture in the world and a certain um, I think a certain openness to to other people that um, 
that I really admire in that culture. So yeah, so this this book has those things because I was drawing on my own at at that time little boy to create this little boy who I was very fond of in the book. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Yeah, my son's obsession with skateboarding is a new thing as we're surrounded by skate parks here in Colorado, which he has discovered. Um, well, very good. Thank you, Lydia. Um, I told you we were going to talk about the Trump presidency and we'll do it kind of, uh, we'll approach it sideways here. Uh, there is a moment in your novel when our characters walk into a place where televisions are playing and every television is playing either Fox News or football. Um, what does one think or what do you think when you walk into a place such as this? Yeah, the, the place in the book is a, a small mountain town here in Arizona uh, based based on a, a real small mountain town that I've been to with a diner like the one in, in the book. And, um, and although I haven't been there for years, I actually didn't go there during you know, between 2016 and 2020. Uh, but it was already like that before then. There was already um, Fox News, uh, a sort of dominant dominant voice in the room. And how I feel, I mean, I feel alienated when I when I go into those places, I can't lie. Um, <laughs> I, I wish I didn't because I want to, you know, you want to find company and, and you want to feel that you're in a friendly place, but it can be hard sometimes um, in, in um, well, in the sort of, I, I live outside Tucson, so I live in the, in the proper desert in a really, in an exurb, it's kind of like um, right beside a national park. And, uh, and a lot of folks are MAGA around here and are um, sort of anti-vax for example, and anti-mask. And, um, you know, two of my neighbors directly adjacent shoot off guns in their front yards um, on a, you know, on a semi-regular basis. And, and so sometimes it's hard to feel at home, even in a place you love. And, um, and there are moments of, of that in this book, because there have to be if you live in the Intermountain West now. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um... Thank you, Lydia. I now want to ask you about Van Austin, Gil's friend. Um, and my question is, do you know anyone named Van Austin? I want to invite you to talk about the character in general, but my interest lies both in the fact that my son's name is Van and the city that I moved from Raleigh, North Carolina. There's a gentleman who lives there who owns a very popular bar and music hall named Slams and his name is Van Austin. Um, are you aware of this Van Austin or is that a name that is totally unrelated to the gentleman that I know? Uh, no, it is unrelated. Although I have really vaguely and sort of from a distance encountered someone named that but he bears who is a constitutional lawyer i believe um uh possibly was at duke or maybe ucla or something like that anyway i have encountered someone with that name but this character has has nothing to do with with him but that's funny i didn't i didn't know there were so many van alstons floating around yeah right it is an unusual name since we're talking about him do you want to um tell our listeners about the relationship that this character van austin has with our protagonist gil yeah you know he's van austin for me is sort of a he's a character i've written different versions of before um the kind of character i'm particularly fascinated by um as i'm fascinated by the real life people um 
that such characters are based on, but essentially sort of obnoxious and rough in various ways and uh, reductive, but also, and sort of self-blind, right? Like I like characters with blind spots, um, but also in this case, these sort of, um, you know, deeply, deeply good and deeply damaged guy. Um, there's there's a real goodness to him and there's also a real rudeness. Like, I guess I like rude, I like rude characters um, because I see myself sometimes as rude or having to like, restrain my my rudeness um <laughs> because i wasn't brought up to be rude but i i'm really amused by it i'm just a, i'm just really makes me laugh rudeness just makes me laugh and um this character made me laugh so uh since i write partly to make myself laugh uh yeah. you know that's that's how he came to be and he's you know quite quite different from from gill even though gill is in his own way sort of devoted to to Van Alston as a friend. Um, but Gil's a, you know, he's a quieter person. He's more self-contained and, um, but he enjoys the spectacle of other people's bluntness and, and rudeness um, in, in a way that I do as well. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, it sure does. Thank you so much, Lydia. Um, and finally, uh, I want to ask you about the title of this book. I wanted to save this question for last because I wanted you to know that I've read this novel closely and I'm not just asking a question about the title um, because I don't have anything else to ask. But the title, Dinosaurs, uh, why this title for this book? Is it because of the birding aspect with birds having evolved from dinosaurs uh maybe because the slightly uh older protagonist um is a dinosaur in some ways both neither or do you prefer to leave this interpretation open to the reader um well all three i would say i, I would say all three of those things i also think you know we have this this peculiar relationship to dinosaurs um our kids do in culture but even we do as adults to some degree like these sort of magnificent creatures who lived so long ago hundreds of millions of years and yet we know we know something about them we can we can reconstruct them and um so there's these these extinct creatures who live in our imaginations all the time and uh and i i fear many of the animals that we live with today becoming dinosaurs themselves and so uh that is you know creatures whose effigies we know or whose forms we know um from from film say or um other documents but won't ever be able to know in in the real world anymore and so that's a great fear and preoccupation of mine uh that when my children were younger my mother's partner who's a who's a geneticist among other things um used to insist to them that birds were dinosaurs and they would argue with him and get really annoyed um but he would say no genetically they they are dinosaurs they're dinosaurs and my daughter especially would say but they're not dinosaurs they're not dinosaurs <laughs> and it would just be this like circular argument you know where one was insisting one thing and the other the other thing um and so I just like the birds as dinosaurs uh, uh, proposition just intrigues me. You know, how, how are they dinosaurs and how are they not? And what what does it mean to say that something is, you know, um, is a certain category of of being like what what sort of decisions do we make about 
animals based on how we categorize them. Like we see ourselves as homo sapiens, you know, before we see ourselves as mammals. And what does that mean? Because we are mammals and there are times when we really are aware of that, um, like in childbirth, for example. Uh, and um, so the ways in which we sort of privilege certain forms of our identity over over other forms, I think, have wide sort of ripple effects. Anyway, I'm just interested in the categories that we create and and how they overlap and um, and kind of uh, war with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Lydia. Um, we're very invested in dinosaurs in my household currently. Are you familiar with the concept of Dinovember? No. Tell yeah. me about Dinovember. <laughs> I think that came around um, probably when your um, son was a little bit older, but it's this thing where if you have dinosaurs, dinosaur toys in your house um, at night in November, they come alive. It's kind of like an elf on the shelf concept, which we don't do, but then you have to set up all the dinosaurs in these really weird scenes. And then your, your son wakes up and is totally amazed at how the dinosaurs have come alive at night and what they're doing. Oh, that's um, great. No, I like it, that. Yeah, it, it's great. It gets a little, uh, it gets a little tiresome around November 20th or so. You're like, geez, 10 more days. <laughs> That you show a real commitment to, to this. Yeah. I, I admire that. Right. Um, well, thank you so much, Lydia. And thank you for writing this excellent novel and coming onto the show to talk about it. Listeners, I have been speaking with Lydia Millet, author of Dinosaurs, which is published by our friends at WW Norton and Company. Lydia, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for letting me be here. It was fun. Once again, I would like to thank Lydia Millet for joining me. Copies of Dinosaurs can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Quail Ridge Books and Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space, and get one free book and support your favorite My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Booking.